how can you be part of a religious community that straight up sometimes it feels like the church is trying to hold the church on. seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the why are they so obsessed with keep trying to get answers i would never be a part of a church that is not welcoming the church is the most vocal political voice against immigration churches still the one they claim that worship was the actual the church seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the like, culture how is that actually it seems like so much of the church is more concerned with being a good American anti-critical than they are being homophobic, too narrow, judgmental, disconnected from what is truly happening in the real world. <sighs> the church needs therapy. Welcome to the newest episode of The Church Needs Therapy. And today, our very special guest is Amanda Held Opelt. Is that how you pronounce that right? I meant to ask you before. You got it right, Opelt. Yes, yeah. great. Amanda is an author, speaker, and songwriter. She writes about faith, grief, and creativity, and believes in the power of community, ritual, shared worship, and storytelling to heal even our deepest wounds, which actually sounds like a great definition of what it means to be a Christian, by the way. I hope so. <laughs> you know, I hope that's what it is. <laughs> uh, Amanda has spent 15 years as a social worker and humanitarian aid worker. She lives in the mountains of Boone, North Carolina, hence the view you were just describing to me with her husband and two young daughters. What are your, how old are your daughters now? It's hard to say. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, time feels so elastic when you have small kids in a pandemic. Uh, mm-hmm. One just turned four uh, just nice. last week. And the other is, I think, one and a half. Uh, she'll be one and a half in a few weeks. Yeah. Oh, cool. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah we're pre- we're close enough in the stages of parenting because my my son's three and my daughter's five. But they're about uh, yeah. to turn four and six. So it's kind of like I'm with you, but like one stage yeah. ahead of that. Yeah, part of exactly. Yeah. So you oh, see yeah. the bag, the bags under the eyes. We're pandemic. We're even put it, it's 10 a.m. here. And for people without kids, you have no idea how much life I've lived already today. I just want to <laughs> let you know that between that and getting home in this podcast, I'm, my energy is pretty much done for the day. Yeah. Yeah, no, I totally get that. It's it's a labor of love and we enjoy every minute of it and we are exhausted. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And also because we'll be talking about it today, Amanda recently published the book, A Hole in the World, Finding Hope in Rituals of Grief and Healing, which the cover is beautiful, by the way. So Amanda, thank you, thank you so much for being with me personally today in this conversation and also with the listeners to the Church Needs Therapy podcast. Yeah. Thanks, Kevin. I'm, it's an honor to be invited on. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Do you ever, before we get into like the engine of the book and what, what initially was the catalyst and we can talk about the nature of the book, you know, the, I have a book coming out in January called the joy of letting go. Oh, great. title! And yeah. And thank you. And I started the book off by essentially saying like, to begin, I just want you to know that I know And what I say is I know writing a book about letting go is not a great strategy for gaining popularity or building a platform, right? Because I'm like, for me, this book about letting go means I only want to write about the one thing people don't want anything to do with. Mm. And yet I know, and we all know at certain points of honesty in life, it's the one thing we all need to learn how to do. And acceptance 
yeah. and letting go and grief are all very connected. Yeah. So do you ever laugh at the fact that like the one thing you really want to write about is the thing that people are just like, that's the thing I actually unconsciously avoid at all costs, which is, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it is, there is kind of like a market ceiling to a book on grief. It's funny. Like I talk to my publisher every now and then, and you know, it's like, well, how are say, you know, we have to talk about sales and it's like, well, pretty good for a book on grief, <laughs> you know, and you were, it, it is funny. I think those of us who make grief our life's work and who study it, there's almost like this little, I mean, this is just capitalism for you, but there's this like kind of the pandemic happened and it was like, oh, maybe people will be interested in grief again. Like maybe there's going to be a little bit of a, yeah, a, 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 an uptick in interest and I think that's true for a while, but my husband was just saying last night, mm. he was like, I, I think people are even more tired of grief than they were before. Like, I feel mm. like we just had it in our faces for two and a half years and people are kind of ready to, to just move on. Um, unless of course you are someone who lost someone you love during that time and you know, you can't move on from it. So it is, yes, it is an, a really interesting experience to write about something people don't want to talk about to try to, you know, share and sell and, and kind of spread you, the word about know, a topic. But you know, deeply that people need it. And we all do. That's right. That, that, that to me is a part of the irony of it is like, you want to write about the one thing people don't want, but everybody needs to actually have the life that avoiding that thing they think they can create without it, but can't. Yeah, that's right. Right. I wrote the book <laughs> you're absolutely right. I wrote the book I wished I'd had when I was grieving. Mm. It's a book I wish I had 20 years ago to kind of help mm. prepare me for the series of losses I've experienced. And so, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I think you hit the nail on the head. <laughs> yeah. We want books about being brave. We want new ways to think about God. We want the permission to let our lives be messy and kind of whatever's mm. in the zeitgeist in the moment. Yeah. But if we're honest, the actual depth of the real work for those times when we feel mm -hmm. stuck, when we can't move on, when you can't just be inspired out of something, it's because there's yeah. a different path forward, which is why, while it may not, you know, those may not be the topics people flock to at a deeper level. You're like, but when this all stops working, this is the way forward. So right. yeah, I'm, right. I'm, yeah, yes, I'm like about to, I feel like my second book, I'm like, I'm about to enter. I'm like, the one thing I want to write about is the one thing people don't really want to do. So, yeah. yeah. But yeah. you know what? I think it takes a lot of courage to write a book like that. And, and you know, just a word of, of uh, I don't know, you know, encouragement to you is that, um, you know, I think the, the artist, the, the, the pastor, I would dare say the mm. artist, the pastor, they have to find peace with investing themselves in the long, slow, difficult work that mm. no one's going to affirm and no one's going to, mm. it, it, it might never reach that upper echelon of platform. And you kind of have to make peace with that because you mm. know, that's what the world needs. So this is a speech I give myself uh, most days. I sometimes <laughs> listen to myself. <laughs> You're right. After I talk to my publisher, this is the speech I tell her. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, it's not about success. It's about faithfulness to mm. the particular call I have in my life. Mm. And the word of, I think, pastoral, prophetic uh, guidance, warning, mm. whatever it may be that I mm. feel like God's placed in my life. So I'm trying yeah. to be faithful to it, you know? 
Yeah, no, I'm with you on that. You know, Rumi has this great, great quote where he says, you know, speaking of the devices, you dance inside my chest where no one mm. sees you. And I feel like acceptance, letting go grief, because for me, there are the larger things, which we'll get into in the book, you know, the, the grieving and the, those heavier things in our life. But those interconnected sort of dynamics of letting go acceptance and grief those aren't just for big things. Those are for small things. That's when your kid irritates you and accidentally like elbows you in the head and yeah. you, part of you wants to be mad, but they want to keep playing. And you're like, I actually have to practice acceptance and letting go to keep being present to them and play. So those, yeah. the, the inner mechanics of it, yes, it's for the big, but then it's also, you realize every day, a oh, little, little, little offense here, a little thing there. Oh, little form of acceptance. Now I can return. So it's yeah, actually, to me, a lot more practical than people realize every that's day. That's exactly right. Yeah, you're right. So the catalyst, the engine for the book, right? Before the creative project, before the artist creates, before the sermon, before the book, before the song, oftentimes there's this engine, this catalyst, you know, it's really fat. And that's, I'm really fascinated by how those things work. Mm -hmm. Sometimes a movie builds up and then one line in the movie hits a particular way and you're like, that's a book. That's a mm -hmm. song. You, you won't know it, but I know that's what was this that gave me the thing of doing this whole thing. Yeah. So for a hole in the world, where is, how is that engine first built? What is the catalyst that first mm -hmm. kind of created the energy of all the work that went into it? Yeah. Well, if five years ago, you would have told me that I'd be writing a book about grief, you could knock me over with a feather. Um, because I had had this just like really, I don't know, easy hashtag blessed, stable life up into a point. Like I thought that kind of like catastrophic loss or deep grief was something that happened to other people, right? Like that wasn't me. And I, so I, I don't know why it was this kind mm. of illusion of control that I had this, this idea that I'd somehow be immune from all that stuff. It was just in me. And mm. I, I didn't even name, I couldn't even name it. It was just there. Which also, you I'm going to interrupt really quick. I think you saying knock me over with a feather. I don't even know if that's Southern, but I feel like that might be the most Southern thing anyone ever said to me before. Cause I don't even I, know. I, I never heard that before. I, well, it kind of means I'd have been shocked. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah. You can keep that idiom for future use if you want. That's, that's free. <laughs> that's free for you, Kevin. Um, but I, so I, in fact, I was actually it, a while back was working on another book idea and was just kind of starting to put together that proposal and that outline and all that stuff. And then kind of all of a sudden I experienced these, this series of devastating losses. And, you know, the, the first was the death of a grandparent rather suddenly. And, you know, I'd had other grandparents die, but this was one that lived close to me that I was very close to. She was um, older, but had quite a bit of life left in her, we thought. And she died really suddenly when I was on a work trip in uh, East Africa. And so I couldn't make it home in time for the funeral. Um, shortly after that, um, you know, my, my work in aid has taken me to some pretty difficult places in the world. And I was uh, deployed for a, a short period of time at a field hospital that our organization set up just outside of Mosul, Iraq, during the um, kind of Iraqi offensive to retake Mosul from ISIS control. And our job was to take patients coming out of the of the city. Uh, and so we were taking civilians, combatants, soldiers that basically had been 
um, you know, their bodies had been decimated by warfare. And I had never seen or experienced that. Like to me, war was something that happened on television. It, it wasn't, there was something about it that wasn't real to me. And even just mm-hmm. witnessing it in the lives of other people so close up to watch, you know, children die of bullet wounds. Like th- this was something that for me was jarring and, and even to some degrees traumatic. And, and mm-hmm. so I was processing, as I was processing all of that, I experienced the first of what would eventually be three miscarriages. And so wow. just the walking through that and just kind of what a disenfranchised form of grief that is with no rituals and no public mm-hmm. acknowledgement, trying to mm-hmm. kind of name what was happening inside of me. And then, and then probably most, I think the the atom bomb that really just went off in my life was the death of my um, sister. She was my only sibling. It was completely unexpected um, loss. She, she had a severe illness. And after three weeks of battling it, she, she died. She had a three-year-old and an 11-month-old at the time. Wow. And so it, it was not only the loss of a relationship. It was a complete obliteration of like a family structure um, you know, the roles and responsibilities got completely upended, like kind of the things that I had to, to, to do in, in life, the responsibilities I suddenly that got thrown on me in the midst of all this grief was just really hard to process, continues to be hard to process. And so that's, I think it was after that, that I was just like, okay, I guess I'm not immune to this really kind of jarring, shattering form of grief that some people experience. That's my story now. And what do I do with it? And I just found that I have like a lack of coping mechanisms, a lack of resources to know how to, how to deal with all the emotions I was experiencing. And that's kind of what sent me on my journey to understand how other cultures or people from the past have maybe sought to process their their grief together in community wow. hmm. well when, after that and then you you know start looking forward that of the resources the the work you're writing on for the book for the old book proposal before where you're like I'm over that that's not happening <laughs> yeah I mean I just I <laughs> I think that I just could yeah I mean it's just like you 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 have like the self I was bringing to the work was a grieving self mm-hmm. you know that that was what I all I had to offer to the world at that point was my grief. And I don't mean that in a belittling sense. Like I don't mean that to, to in any shameful kind of way. I just, that was who I was. And those are the only words that I had were words of, of grief and uncertainty and questions and bewilderment and disorientation. And so I, I kind of started journaling about how I was feeling and then I don't know. I've said this before, but I think like my phone, you know how your phone knows things about you that you don't even tell it. It just knows like my phone Mm -hmm. knew I was grieving and the algorithm, like your Instagram ads were just like, what is happening? (laughs) Yes, exactly. And so like my newsfeed and, you know, like I was just scrolling and I started just coming across all these articles on historic bereavement traditions. Mm. And so as I started studying those, it really just opened up it was like a window had finally been opened up and, and some air came in. I, I, I suddenly started being able to put my finger on the emotion I was feeling um, in a way that I hadn't really before. And so as I began to kind of even journal about all that I was learning, 
I went back to my agent and said, Hey, you know, by that time, COVID, you know, right in the middle of my whole grief story, COVID just decides to like make an appearance. So that of course was bad, bad timing. Um, but because COVID was something now that the world was dealing with and we kind of were, I don't know how, being confronted by this like mm-hmm. global communal grief, mm-hmm. I said, would this be a more timely book to write? If I can find it in me to write it, would this mm-hmm. maybe be the right thing to do? And she said to give it a go. And, and so I did. And um, uh, yeah, the publisher was real keen to publish it. I think because they knew this was something that the world might, might need right now. Mm-hmm. So that that's that's really really interesting how your own personal things popping up like algorithm you know which which goes to show the fact that they're always listening isn't always bad you know sometimes I know man it's th- like some, sometimes they have things to offer us except for products <laughs> no don't say that I don't I don't want to think in a judgmental smug way about the algorithm okay. I, but it's actually kind of true like the algorithm gave me a gift and changed my life mm. in in mm. some way and I'm grateful for it. So after, so what were some of the initial, so in the book, you have different chapters on different kinds of rituals, right? Like the Irish tradition of keening, the Jewish tradition of sitting Shiva, which the Victoria tradition, which I've never heard of the postmortem photographs, which is, you know, even crazy to even think about. Yeah. I don't even know the depths of that. That's just really unique when I first kind of came across that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you talk to, uh, so it could be other chapters in there, you know, ones that stick out, ones you're more familiar with, or just, you know, for whatever reason, like talking about better, but can you talk to the people about one of these or a couple and what they were back then and how you feel they still offer us a path through grieving today? Yeah. 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 Well, I'll talk a little bit about Irish Keening because it was, it was the first, it was the, it was the the ritual that came up on the algorithm that really started mm. me on my journey. And, and it really was just this practice in the olden days of Ireland. Like, if you I, like Richard Rohr and John Philip Newell, you maybe will like the idea of keening. <laughs> it's true. It's like, it just knows, it just knows I'm telling you. Um, yeah. And it, it's, it's kind of, when I first read about it, I was like, well, that's very strange, but it turns out like wailing or keening at funerals is still practiced all over the world. It's mm, just not practiced. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember falling into kind of my husband's lap and sobbing at my sister's funeral, but thinking I needed to keep it quiet, right? I needed mm. to, I need, I don't need anyone to see that this is happening. I just, I, I need to be, um, I need to maintain my decorum and my fortitude mm. because that's what you get kind of lauded for in grief in the West. It's like for being mm. strong, for being resilient. It's like, oh, you're so strong. I'm so proud of you. But in the olden days of Ireland, I think people would say it's not normal if you're not mm. wailing, screaming, mm. moaning, crying aloud at a funeral. What they would do is they would they would gather the whole community in the home of the deceased and they would have the Irish wake, which, you know, there's a lot of like stereotypes and perceptions about the raucous Irish wakes. And a lot of them are true, though they could mm-hmm. they were parties, they were celebrations of life in many ways, but the evening would culminate in this time of communal wailing and they would have women in the community called the Bonquinta, which means the, the lead crier. They were wow. criers. And these were women that sometimes served as midwives in the community. So they knew well that, that 
thin space between living and dying. And mm. they brought people into the world and they ushered them out. And the, these lead keeners would, would gather everyone in, in the room um, and they would begin moaning kind of gently and softly crying. And eventually they would start crying louder and they would maybe sing songs in tribute to the, the, the loved one who had died. And eventually the whole room would join in and people would cry for the person who died, but they'd also be wailing aloud for their loved ones who had died five years ago, 10 years ago. It was just kind of this communal acknowledgement of the grief we all carry in life. And this would go on for an hour, maybe, maybe longer until it eventually quieted down and then it was over. And, and I think it just like that, that sense of permission to fall apart it's mm-hmm. to me felt really, really healing because I had been trying to just keep it contained. And, and the kind of, I think the, the moral imperative of the Irish wake is to say, no, you must release it. You must allow yourself to be shattered or else there's no way forward. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that was one that, that really stuck out to me. Another, another ritual that I, I carry close to my heart is telling the bees because my husband's a beekeeper it's his hobby. I and mean, we have uh, three hives now. And, and so, um, you know, this, this was the practice in like the 17 and 1800s in Europe and America, where it was believed that if someone in the household died, you had to go out to the beehives and put the bees in mourning. So that meant that you would put black cloth over the hives and you would tell, you had to tell the bees what happened. And if you didn't tell the bees, it was believed that um, they would either fly away or they would, they would die. And if bees were livelihoods for people, then that, that meant just one more catastrophic loss after the death. And so I think what I learned from that ritual is just like fear is a very, fear is a very normal response to grief. I think once you kind of are confronted with the precarity of life, you begin to worry that everything's going to fall apart. Right. And so I think this act of telling the bees was maybe just some kind of a practice and agency, if nothing else, to say, hey, I'm scared. I'm scared I'm going to lose my livelihood. I'm scared the bees are going to fly away. I'm afraid everything's going to fall apart. This is one thing I can do in hopes of that not happening. And so just being able to kind of name name the precarity of life and name how fragile everything is helped me somehow process the emotions I was experiencing. Mm. Mm. You know, I feel like, you know, after my wife and I, we you know we led our church, started it, led it for about 10 years and just closed yeah. it down like a few months ago. Wow. wow. Like right at the end of May. Right. So like last fall into Christmas, we were making that decision, came back, announced, did our own like last, here's a small six month season we have together before we officially close it down you know, you obviously go through a lot pastoring and church planning is, is intensified version of that just because of the uniqueness of it. And now after 10 years of doing that, sometimes I think, you know, one of the most spiritually mature things adults can do is to learn how to feel the fullness of their feelings. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know. I'm curious. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I'm curious your thoughts on this too. Is it like, why have, why have we in kind of modern evangelical culture labeled like emotional has negative connotations in my mind. It always did growing up. I don't know. Was that your experience growing up and and why do you think that was? Yeah. My experience is different from a lot of my peers because while I did go to Catholic school for second and third grade, I stopped going. And then I went to public school, which I joke around all the time. Like 
going to public school in fourth grade in LA Unified School District was because I grew up in Los Angeles was salvation yeah. for me at that age. Yeah, I'm like, totally. we can cuss and we can fight and it's not that big a deal. Like I've arrived the fullness of who I am at nine yeah. and now come out right. and I did it. And when I stopped going to mass soon after I, I grew up with no zero awareness of anything evangelical. Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't know it. I didn't know anything about that. It was, I had this profound awakening moment with God at 18 while I was on mm. mushrooms and it wasn't until later I first entered into churches. Yeah. But so I don't know about like the negative, the stigma around like emotions or like I have heard along the way, my time where I've touched upon being an evangelical or yeah. you know, was involved in evangelical spaces. Yeah. It's like, oh, they're just emoting. And I'm like, as if it was like, we're just going to let them do that for a little bit. You know, I, it seems to me, people of faith and specifically evangelicals are very, very unconsciously trained in the distorted art of bypassing. Yeah. You know, yeah, and gaslighting yeah. as well, but bypassing, you know, so much. And that actually, so my angle on that or why I think about that isn't so much like, cause I was told not to do it growing up. You know, it's, it, it just comes from, man, we can, we can avoid our feelings. We can distract ourselves from our feelings and we can even talk about our feelings, but we have a deep problem actually feeling yeah. our feelings all the way through. And, and I think that speaks to why this book was so important for you to write and why you wish you had it 20 years ago is because the process and path to get to a shared space, a holding of a space that allows me in the grief to feel the fullness of my feelings, practice that radical level of acceptance, let go of whatever yeah. I need to let go of to even start to feel those feelings. Yeah. Cause like I said, you know, multiple times, those are all connected. That seems to be, very, very, like one of the last things people learn how to yeah. do. And now I'm like, if you can pastorally as an artist, as a singer songwriter, right. And with this kind of unique things that we do create the rituals and hold the space that allows people to do that. That to me is some of the deepest work. So yeah, what, 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 what role does feeling our mm. feelings have? Cause now to me, I would look at it like, I'm connecting with rituals. There's permission that's coming from the mm -hmm. keening. There's this realizing how fear is involved in this and all these different things. Mm -hmm. But to me, those are rituals opening up space to then do the depth of the work within, which involves feeling of our feelings. Yeah, so for yeah. you, how do you see that feeling and connecting yeah. with the grieving and how do the rituals Gosh. maybe open us up or lead yeah. us to or through? Yeah. So yeah. Well, again, I do think it is a sense of permission that I wasn't necessarily given. I, I, I want to be clear. I felt like I was given emo permission to feel all my feelings in my home. Like my dad is mm. a counselor. And so it's mm. like we had That's full awesome. permission, but it, it was more, it was more just a subculture I was part of. Like I, I remember being in a church service and the pastor saying over and over again, you know, God gets a hold of us through the thoughts and intellect and Satan gets a hold of us through the emotions and the, nice. and the heart. <laughs> and it's like, Oh, you know, and there I was like 20, 25 year old evangelical me, like making notes and like, Oh, that's so good. And, and to, to some degree, there is a sense in which we, we, we cannot allow kind of our, our whims and, and all of our emotive responses to drive our behaviors. But I, I always, that those statements like that mm. made me um, kind of categorize emotions as 
things that were not to be trusted, that, that mm. were void of truth, that were detached from the truth. Whereas, you know, as I've gone back to the Bible in my later years, of I've experienced kind of a much wider range of emotions. Mm. I actually see a, a Bible scriptures that are really indulgent of a wide array of emotions. And I actually see a God who is very emotive, who sends prophets and pastors and shepherds out into the world who are very emotive. Like the, the prophetic scriptures are nothing if not emotive. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so you have a God who's angry and a God who grieves and a God who even, I mean, there are verses that, that even say he has regrets. I mean, and that's really hard to square with some of our systematized theologies of God's yeah, the, sovereignty. The, 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 the and, distant, detached Greek metaphysical God doesn't feel, especially never regrets. Right. It's like we, we can't absorb that with our kind of Western minds. And, you know, it, it's, it's, and so I think when I went back to scripture as a griever and started noticing all the emotions that, that there were, I, 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 I decided maybe what emotions can be are our windows into reality and like windows into what are true. Like the reason I'm overcome with sadness, it's not because I have weakness of faith or because I don't trust in God's goodness or providence. I am overwhelmed by sadness because I had deep love for someone and that person mm -hmm. is gone and death is unnatural and, and death is, is, it's natural and it's unnatural. A death is never what God intended. And, and death is something that this hard reality we all live with. And, and it's okay to feel angry about it. It's okay to feel sad. It's okay to feel, um, to feel shattered by it. And I, so I, I eventually, the, I don't know, but pastors and preachers didn't necessarily give me permission to believe that, but the Bible did. I think the Bible actually gave me permission to believe that. And, and I'm, and, and rituals did too. And I, I kind mm -hmm. of, gosh, I, in some ways it's odd that like a pagan ritual led me back to the Bible, you know what I mean? Or some of these rituals that weren't necessarily rooted in, in theology, they were a little bit more rooted in some pagan inclinations. And mm -hmm. those things kind of gave me a curiosity for what my faith tradition actually has to say about this. And it turns mm -hmm. out the Bible is very, mm -hmm. it's very, I think, affirming of emotion and, and affirming mm -hmm. of kind of yeah, that, that wide range of, of emotions that we experience in life. Yeah. The, the ancient, you know, from when you look at the ancient traditions, the perennial tradition of mystics and you, and you're looking at old communities, they didn't have the psychological sophistication, the ways in which the mind has mm -hmm. evolved, but the, the intuition and the wisdom and the real wisdom to understand the need for rituals, you know, the mm -hmm. way rituals align the head, the heart and the mm -hmm. body as one, which then allow you to hold the space to do the, the actual work. They knew that, you know, we, you yeah. can, we lose that, but they, they didn't have to understand all these complex categories mm -hmm. to get, Oh, when it comes to the whaling, or you look at ancient near Eastern cultures and they bring women in to wail for people. Yeah. Cause like, have you ever, like how many of us in churches with friends or family been in spaces where the one person naming 
and embodying the grief of where they are all of a sudden why is everybody around the room teary-eyed why yes it's Mm -hmm. compassion but oftentimes their grief is the open door for us to actually tap into become aware of and be comfortable with our own because there's probably things that need to be grieved within you there's probably some letting go you haven't done forgiveness you haven't done and that thing is like it's like a part of you almost can't resist the gravitational pull of mm. one person, let alone yes. a group of people, a group of women in the ancient in, in an ancient culture. It's so loud, and it's like that. It is a megaphone to that which is truest about you deeply, and them doing it breaks down short circuits all the defense mechanisms and things that get in the way i'm not supposed to feel because my pastor said huh, 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 you know or yeah. just even unconscious defense mechanisms you know that's what rituals and art and storytelling do is they sneak past those guard dogs of security and it's like yeah. this is where we are you know this is what we need yeah. yeah i mean you just gave a perfect description of a keener like that's what the keeners mm. did and and there are keeners in in the, the Bible and Jeremiah, you know, it's like, God, God says, I need the wailing women to come so that you finally will open your eyes a to the injustice that you've done and, and B to the grief that is all around you. And he, he called wailing women, the wise learned women. Like they, he said, you know, women teach your daughters how to wail um, because this is, this is an important skill set. And and you're right. It's absolutely the the one person that does what we all feel inside, but she has mm-hmm. the courage to do it. And you're right. It's it's what kind of opens the floodgates of kind of all of us experiencing the fullness <clears throat> of our humanity. Yeah. You know, for Imagine, if that was the name of our church, you know, one of, I think one of people's favorite things we did and one of my favorite things we did was the way we would do Good Friday every mm-hmm. year. And we would do a version of the stations of the cross and it would be like, you know, it's some sort of a rhythm and a flow. We used to do it walking around our neighborhood, but then we would use like this little art kind of space in our neighborhood to Mm -hmm. do it. And it would be like, this person reads the first station. I give like a 20 second explanation of it. And then a person would come up and tell a story. So if this story is about Jesus getting abandoned by a friend, then someone comes up, sits on a stool in front of a microphone, reads a story about when they've been abandoned. Mm-hmm. And when that, and then, and then we would sing like a, like a, a chorus, the same one next station explanation story. And these are heavy, uh-huh. heavy stories. Like these are real, like sexual assault. Dad's not around. Like it, it, this is an intense, those heavy moments where everybody's in tune like the real grieving you know everyone's like uh, we're in sync we're present there's no pithy statements after there's no bible it's not like no but you're gonna be fine it's no the the environment says we're not doing that all you can do is be silent and hold space Hmm. and those were very very intense and beautiful moments but then people walk away and they're like, that was one of my favorite things I've ever done. I'm like, why? Cause we're all, you're feeling shitty together. Like everyone's just grieving, but that, that speaks to the need. This is all hard. This sucks. This is painful. And yet we didn't disintegrate. Like that's what I think about feeling our feelings is the story we're in is death and resurrection. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's never avoiding death. It's death and resurrection. And that is the power for me. And that's basically all I ever want to tell people through my work is like that happened. You can accept it and feel it all the way through. 
That's and right. you'll be, and you'll be okay on the other side. And actually, if you do the real work of acceptance, letting go and grief, you can be more free yeah, and more right. joyful, less naive, less like hashtag bless guys. Life's easy. There's horses outside my house. We're all good. Like yeah. you will be changed, but you can be more free on the other yeah. side. Like that. I feel like that's almost like for me, I'm like, that's what I want to keep telling people is right, you can right. feel it all the way through. You know, right. Uh, I love that. And I think like, that's the thing about to me, I mean, this is why, like, in spite of my own doubts and exploration of my faith and uncertainty, like I keep coming back to this story of our faith because grief is so much of our brand. <laughs> like as, mm. as Christians, I do feel like that's so much part of the story. The story of the church is a story of like ours is a God who died. Like ours is a God who subjected himself to the grief of death and, and, and the grief. I mean, it, he, he was incarnate into, into one of the most difficult circumstances a human can experience. Mm-hmm. And, you know, born into a, a, a colonized community, like suffered poverty, rejection, betrayal, his own death, you know? And, and I think that like, that's kind of how our story begins. And I do believe that there's resurrection and I do believe there's, there's joy and there's triumph, but we, we so prefer the victorious God to the grieving God. <laughs> like mm-hmm. we so prefer, prefer the God who triumphs over the God who subjects himself to the humility of death. Like, mm-hmm. but we, we have to have both. And that's why I think like the, the, the church and the church has in many ways historically been such a, a keeper and a preserver of rituals of grief. I just don't want us to, to lose that. You know, I don't mm. want us, you know, it, we, evangelicals can sometimes tend to be a little wary of ritual and say, well, it's, mm. it's too rote or it's too habitual, but I think there's something really beautiful in the rote habit of approaching grief on a regular basis and approaching mm some of those, those hard truths, even when they don't feel good, you know? Mm. Yeah. The, the desire for the triumphant, you know, Mm -hmm. God without the, the wounded, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, savior, which is, you know, that's very true for Christians, especially in the West when our brand is winning and being the best and being the strongest and we don't all that stuff. And that's also brought it outside of the Christian tradition. That's just people, you know, people, they would like the culture of like inspiration. I'm just like, I know. Like, yeah. I'm like, you, the, the, the truth is you can't grit your way through grief. You can't just mm-hmm. try out of willpower. You can't try your way through trauma. That's not how this works. I don't give, it doesn't matter how many people can tell you like, come away to this weekend retreat and you'll die to your ego forever. I'm like, yeah. Money well spent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and when, when we would do, that good Friday thing early on, we would walk around the neighborhood and, you know, let's say there's like 30 people walking around the neighborhood, right. Doing that. And then it was just this really symbolic thing happening. Cause a block or two away at this big place where concerts are in my, in our neighborhood, right. At the street, a very large mega church has their good Friday service. And you know, those good Friday services, like Friday's already Sunday, mm-hmm. you know, we're already yeah. there. We're doing a salvation yeah. message that night. Who wants to all that stuff? Like when, if you're there on a Friday, like we already won. You know, Easter yeah. is like just to prove God's divine, you know, or whatever. Right, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. I'm like, huh, it do, I, I'm not judging. Doesn't mean we're better, but I'm like, what an interesting thing to think that thousands of people are in a stadium with the triumphant Fridays already, we've already won. 
and there's 30 people walking around a neighborhood holding space for grief together. I'm like, there's something to that. I just would think that as we were doing it and you started to speak about it with your own uncertainty and your own faith and what you returned to. And I had a question and I think you saying that, you know, makes me think of it as well. Like if you could name some of the deepest distinctions between your understanding and embodiment of life and faith before mm-hmm. going into the death and grief and rituals, your own experience and the understanding of it and where you're at now and you know, where you are now mm-hmm. as a person of faith, whatever that means, as somebody who identifies with Jesus, whatever that means to yeah. you in this particular moment, how is, you know, there's Amanda's faith there when you're like, hashtag bless, it's all good. You know, like that thing, yeah. which is that's, those are all stages of all of our lives, you know? Yeah. Yeah. What are some of those, like, I'm still a person of faith, but back then it felt look or sounded like this, but now it's more this and yeah. not that, but it is this. Yeah. Well, you know, something my mom used to always say that I appreciated, she used to say like, well, people are the way they are for a reason. And that was normally something mm. she would say, like if a kid was mean to us on the playground, you know, it was her way of like instilling compassion in us, like mm. hurt people, hurt people. <laughs> mm. um, but, but that concept of like, okay, why am I the way I am? has always been something that's really intriguing to me is like, what, what is it about my culture? What is it about my upbringing? What is it about the society that I live in the country, the time period that makes me who I am. And so I think if the, if, if I could kind of name anything that has changed specifically, I think I just didn't, I, I just wasn't able to see my own cultural conditioning in, in my mm. youth. And, and what I mean by that is that I, I just wasn't able to see that, Hey, maybe the reason I believe this theologically or the way I think this is the right way to do faith is because I grew up white evangelical in the South, like in 1990, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And this is just this whole idea of this is not the way it's always been. Like, I I guess I kind of had this impression that Christianity began in 1500 with Martin Luther and the, and the reformation and, you know, like, sorry, you're all Charles Spurgeon was the first preacher ever. (laughs) Oh, right. Sorry. Yeah, that's right. Charles Spurgeon. And it has now culminated and reached, yeah, reached its, its final most purest form in Birmingham, Alabama in 1993. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, Mm. just, and, and part of what exposed me to, Oh, like faith in Jesus could look different is Mm. I I lived overseas. I spent time with Christians in India who obviously had a different perspective on faith. I spent time in, um, you know, the black community in my early twenties, um, and, and just kind of their expressions of faith. And then I, then you talk about open up a can of worms, you start reading history and like medieval mm-hmm. theology and the, the way the early church practiced their faith. And so I, I don't begrudge, I, I sometimes like to say I have evangelical Christian Christianity survivors guilt, because I know a lot of people experienced more harm and trauma in the church than I did. And I actually experienced a lot of warmth and acceptance mm. and beauty in the faith of my upbringing. Um, and also I believe there's more to faith in Jesus than, than what I experienced. And so I think that's kind of the biggest, if you want to talk about faith evolving, deconstructing and reconstructing, I am very scared to use the word deconstruction because 
it means so many things to so many people. But I would, I would say that's been kind of what it's looked like for me. It's just now everything, not that I have to question everything because that's exhausting, but every time I come into something with an opinion or with a bias or with, I, I, I like to say, okay, is this how it's always been? Is this just a given or might this be something that was, that was imparted to me by consumerism, by, by privilege? by, you know, the theology that really only emerged in the 18 and 1900s. And is there any other reference points that I could go back to, to help me rethink this? And so I think in some ways I'm becoming a little bit more committed to orthodoxy. So in some ways I feel like I'm becoming Mm -hmm. both more liberal and more conservative and like both more progressive and more traditional, because I, I think I'm just really trying to root myself in the, in the, in the true fundamentals or that, that, those, those little threads that have woven their way throughout the history of the church that are the core of who we are as followers of Jesus. And that's what I kind of keep trying to come back to. I don't exactly know what it looks like. I'm still, I still don't know what I truly believe about a lot of things. And I think mm. I'm, it's taking time for me to land on what the essentials are. And I've decided that's okay. Like, I think mm. it's okay for me to be patient with myself. Um, and, and so I think, yeah, I guess that was kind of a long answer, but I think that's kind of the difference between where I, where I was and where I am now, you know? Mm, yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's an amazing, and it could be a surprising discovery for people when we see that you can be less certain and more free. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I had this ongoing joke for a while with a friend of my, my wife's and mine and uh, who was a part of our church. And I would say, it's funny how what you believe about Jesus becomes less and less certain. And yet you like, you become more whole in Christ. Mm. Yeah. You know, and, and yeah. that with, with, a, with everything being, becoming very rational into the mind, that's not possible. But when it's mm-hmm. actually, when you're taking the mind, heart and body in an embodied faith, seriously, you can discover that you, I think to me, that's one of those important things for people who are growing and evolving that they wrestle with. And that can, is very confusing is to really, really, really realize for yourself that you are not your beliefs. Yeah. That you are over here having beliefs that are over that you can have beliefs without being so over identified with them that you think you are them. Cause if the, if you're over identified with particular beliefs and those beliefs get shattered, that is when a serious crisis sets in as opposed to the humility of the one through suffering, through love, through mm-hmm. surrendering, through actually becoming and, and falling into God, mm-hmm. it becomes easier to allow your beliefs to change, leave, come because you're like, those are actually not what define my faith is what I believe about this particular thing. It is actually the experience of like, it's not holding on to these beliefs. It's, it's the experiential knowing that I'm being held by God and the mystics offer us that vision so clearly in the poetry that comes from that so well. And that's just such a different thing, you know, suffering. Yeah. It, it, it takes us apart. It clarifies so much. And the faith is, can I hold that space grieve well through it and be held through the death of it and experience that to me is faith. Can you trust the Uh death in your own life far enough to know resurrection for yourself? If faith isn't that we are just 
our ego and separate self is just believing things that are supposed to be Christian as opposed to doing the fullness of the Christ journey ourselves. That's what this is. So, yeah, yeah. I I love that you use the word ego (laughs) there Mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm just pulling up, uh, the, because the myth of certainty, I don't know if you've heard of this book um, and the, the author's name has just slipped my mind and I, I want to do justice to it. And Daniel Taylor, there mm. he is. I just looked him up. Yeah. This quote from his book, the myth of certainty, he says, where, where doubt exists, faith finds its reason for being. And I think that that, that quote really did change. I, I, I just thought, yeah, I thought I had to be sure and certain of everything, mm. not, not, not even just in like, that, that God was real and, and, you know, that, that Jesus was, I, I thought I had to be certain about everything. And, and I think that that, that quote really shed light on the idea that like, no, no, what, what faith is, is like kind of obedience to step forward on the journey. Even when you're not, when you're not certain that I can, I can be faithful, even when I'm not sure, even when I'm not certain of everything, even when I don't have the answers. And I think we've taken that, you know, that the Bible verse, that says like, you always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that's in you. I think we've taken that to mean like, always be prepared to give a reason, like always be certain, always be ready with your apologetics and your systematic theology. And we lose the bit about hope is like, no, be people of hope, like be, be people who carry hope in all its ambiguity and all its uncertainty. Like hope is what you need in the darkness. Hope is what you need when you can't see hope is what you need when you're not certain, like tell people of the hope you hold. And I think that's just kind of, I guess it's just, yeah, it's, it's lightened the load so significantly, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, to, to not, to not feel like you have to have all the answers to everything, you know, with a book. So for people listening in, I'm going to give you a reminder. Amanda Held Opelt, the book, A Hole in the World, Finding Hope and Rituals of Grief and Healing. It's out now. It came out in July. What was it? What was the exact date for that? I think it was July 19th. It came out. July 19th. Go look that up right now because this is just a glimpse of the, the journey for her into rituals and grief and the importance, um, letting people know the need and the importance for it and how nobody can go around it and how it moves us forward into a life of wholeness. And with so many great rituals that she names and reminds us of and recounts and speaks and like, lets us know how they speak to us today. If you're interested in any of this, please go check that out. And my last question, I'm actually going to read a quote from the intro because, you know, we're talking about grief acceptance, the journey through that and how we have a culture that does not help us do that. A culture that does not give us the tools, the analytical tools, the re- the emotional resources, or doesn't always show us a path towards that. And yet, you know, and, and for myself, I believe as well, the inevitable need for those tools and that process of grief and these rituals that can help us do the work that ironically can lead us to the life that, like I said earlier, we think avoiding it is going to give us, but can't. Mm. So you have this quote in the intro where you say the self-help industry has convinced us that we can life hack our way to ease and blessedness. If we are self-care savvy and adequately mindful, then we can circumvent any of life's inconveniences and promptly experience well-being. We are optimizers to the core, absorbing bite-sized therapeutic aphorisms via Instagram as we stand in line at the grocery store or wait in traffic. If there's a shortcut available, we'll take it. If there's a speedy solution, we're sold. 
but there is no life hack for grief. So with a culture that does that, and then your statement of there's no life hack for grief, what would be the sort of, you know, concluding or not concluding, but what was the thing, what was the thing you would offer to people in a culture that's like, you move around it, you jump over it, we get inspired, you know, you get pumped up, you know, we can just pump Sometimes I'm like, it's not about pumping up. It's, a, it's being pumped up. It's about actually waking up. These are not the same things. Mm-hmm. And I, there's so much of that. I'm like, self-help is helping the very self that we need to transcend in order to be whole. So I have yeah. my issues with all that. But in that culture, you say there's no life hack for grief. And what would you offer people with that quote of the importance yeah. of it and why in our culture it's so important? Yeah. Well, you've got kids. Do you have the book going on a bear hunt? <laughs> The, the, this is the, the story where it's like you, they're going on a they're trying to hunt this bear and they keep running into obstacles and the mm. rhyming pattern goes you, you know you can't go around it can't go mm. over it mm. got to go through it you know so they mm. go through the you know the mud patch and they go through the tall grass and they they go through the dark forest and and they eventually find the bear and I won't I won't no spoiler alert, you know, no spoilers here I won't tell you how it ends but I think that that's really true like you can't go over it you can't go under it can't go around it. You got to go through it. And so I, I guess it's not a, ha- I'm like, hope is not a hack. Hope though is like a light for the path that you, that you, mm. that you carry. And so I, I don't want to act, I don't want to give people the impression that, that there's no, there's no joy or there's no peace. or there's no, um, there's no hope to be found in the journey of grief. But I think I just want people to know that like it is, it is emotionally uncomfortable and it remains so for a really, really long time. And that doesn't mean that you're doing something wrong. It doesn't mean that you don't have a strong faith. It doesn't mean that, that you don't believe the right things about God. It just means that you're human and life is hard and, and there's hope and there is, there is companionship and there is joy to be found in life too, but it's just going to take a while to get there and and that's okay. And so I, yeah, I, I think I think that's that's what I would just want people to know is that just because it's hard doesn't mean your life your life can't also be good and can't be beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, but you you can't you cannot escape the difficult and you're not broken because you're experiencing brokenness. Like that's just what it means to live in the world. Love it. So good. Yeah, there's a bit of irony in the people who also talk about grief and talk about letting go that oftentimes are very light and very inappropriate and just playful people. And it's because of like, like Desmond Tutu and the Dalai Lama and that, you know, the, the book of joy, it's like, these are people who have lived under impossible circumstances. And all they do is tickle each other and say inappropriate jokes because they've grieved through the hardest things on the other side, there's still light and hope. So there's, it's always there. Um, yeah. So good. That's Amanda held true. Opel, a hole in the world, finding hope and rituals of grief and healing. Go on Amazon or wherever you get books and find that today. I, I hope some of you will, cause there's, I, there will be so much good stuff, practical depth and wisdom there that, uh, can help guide you through the big things in life and give you a little bit of glimpse of also how grief works through the small things of life as well. So mm-hmm. thank you so much for taking the time. This was great. Kevin, thanks for the great conversation. I always learn something new when I talk to folks like you. So thanks for having me. <laughs> okay.